What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. I think we should pause to think of the incredible success that you've had, Thomas, with this book Normally, having a best-selling book, what is it, how many million, 1.5 million books around the world, is yeah. a good way to get all of your colleagues to hate you. <laughs> how are you finding it in the faculty? Do they still talk to you? No, yes, they do. Uh, you know, uh, look, uh, I think the, the success of the book, uh, uh, you know, to me shows that there are many people uh, in the world who are tired to hear that this is too complicated for them, that income and wealth issues and capital and public debt are too technical subjects that they should be left to a small group of experts. And, uh, you know, I think this is wrong. And I think the, the, what makes me very happy about the success of the book is when I meet, uh, you know, very normal people in, in Brazil or China or Germany or the US or Britain who tell me that they understood everything and that they read it until the end, which takes time, and, you know, I, I apologize. First, I apologize <laughs> that my English sounds so much like French, and, you know... I, we don't mind that. And I apologize for, for writing such a long book, but on the <laughs> other hand, I try to put a lot of historical material into this book, and then people can draw their own conclusion, you know, it's a, that's, I have no problem with the controversy and discussion, and... You, know, you say that everyone comes up to you. Does that mean is that also the supermarket that you can't get past the vegetable aisle without someone saying, <laughs> "What about chapter 13?" Are you mobbed in the supermarkets? Not so much. Uh, not so much, but but certainly more than uh, more than I used to. But you know, I, <laughs> you know, I still have a very normal uh, life as an academic in Paris, and uh, you know, I travel a little bit more than I used to. But uh, by and large, I am back to teaching and, and back to a very normal life uh, as an academic. I mean, you said, and you, nice, you kindly apologised for the length of your book. I think, I, was, I think we've all reviewed the book, so I think we can, we can at least assume that we've read it, I hope. Uh, <laughs> and I know everyone here will have read it as well, every word. Um, but what, actually, what I did find difficult was that it's really many books in one because it's a fascinating bit of history, historical analysis. Uh, it also has an enormous riches of, of data which have been discussed, and I'm sure we'll talk about whether the facts, but there's so much in there. If you were wanting to just say, what's the big idea for people who haven't read every word? What's the main thing that you would like to contribute with this book, the big thought? 
Well, I, I want to contribute to a democratization of economic knowledge. That's the main thing. The main thing is that the history of income and wealth is not simply an economic history. This is a political history, a social, a cultural history. And, and this is why I also uh, use in my book uh, material from political debates, material from the literature talking about inequality, because I think ultimately these representations of inequality are really what's important because this is what determines the, the policies, the institutions that will be chosen. I guess the, the general conclusion from, from my historical study is that there are always alternatives. You know, there are always different ways to address problems. You know, we've already had huge inequality crises in the past. We've already had huge public debt crises in the past, you know, even bigger than what we had today. You see examples in history in Britain, in Germany, in France of countries who have over 200% of GDP in public debt, even more than Greece today. And the good news is that we always found ways to, to get around it. There's no easy way, but there are several ways. You know, there are many different ways to reduce a large public debt. And looking, you know, at this throughout the lenses of history, it's, it's a way to open up the debate. You know, in, in a way, my biggest enemy uh, is uh, uh, intellectual nationalism. You know, the feel that we are unique, that, you know, people in France sometimes feel that, people in Britain certainly, people in the US, in China, and don't want to look at the experience of other countries. And putting these issues into a broad historical comparative perspective can can allow us to, to, to find our own way for the future. There's no easy solution. There's certainly not one way to interpret history, but at least looking at this, I think, can open up um, uh, the discussion, and, and uh, you know, that's why I, I write uh, books. But it isn't just about... I mean, you've, already, you've shown already how many different strands there are in the book, but it's called Capital for a reason... The allusion to Marx is, is not lost on anyone. I mean, why do you focus... What is it about capital inequality? Because I think that's what... You know, there are lots of books about inequality and maybe more now that you've written this book. But there is something particular about the claim that you're making and the engine of inequality that you're pointing to. Do you want to just say a little about that? Well, I, I think the main novelty of my book uh, is that it is really based on, on enormous uh, historical data collection. This comes from a very collective research project. Uh, pe people had been talking about inequality forever, but most of the time with very limited uh, uh, data. So, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Marx in the 19th century. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes he had good intuition, but sometimes he had very bad intuition. And most of all, this, this, he had very little data at his disposal. So the big difference with this book is that we are able to put the study of inequality into this historical perspective. There are many forces going in different directions. You know, if you could explain everything with one mechanism, like the, the gap between the rate of return to capital and the growth rate, then my book will be 30 pages long instead of being 800 pages long. So the reason why it's so big is because it's a complicated story. It involves many different mechanisms. There are forces that can reduce inequality in the long run. In particular, the diffusion of skills and knowledge can be a very powerful force to reduce inequality both between countries, and that's largely going on today with the convergence by emerging countries with the most developed economies. 
this can also work within countries if you have educational institutions that are sufficiently inclusive. But at the same time, there are other forces that can push toward rising inequality, in particular the, the long-run tendency uh, of the rate of return to capital, particularly for large wealth portfolio to exceed the economy's growth rate. But, you know, I don't believe in deterministic economic forces. In the end, it's really the balance between these forces and the choice that we make, the institution policies that we make that will determine which force uh, dominates. Is that... You sound little like you're reacting to some of the debate about the book, because when you read the book, I mean, as a reader, it felt like there was a bit of determinism there. You were highlighting this central, you call it a central contradiction of capitalism, about which, and you talk about once constituted capital reproduces itself faster than output increases, the past devours the future. I mean, it's great. As someone who reads economist books a lot... That's a great read. That's much better than you know, normal bits of academic work. But it sounds Marxian. It sounds as though you are appealing to a, a, an inexorable force. Is that something that you've sort of stepped back a bit from? No, no. You know, from the beginning, again, if everything could be summarized in one sentence and one formula, the book would be uh, 50 pages long. So there are reasons why it is 800 pages long. So from the beginning, this is a complicated story, which, you know, you can highlight some particular mechanism in a simple way, which I think is always... Uh, you know, useful and, uh, and apparently, you know, it can work to get people uh, uh, interested and to remember something simple about the book. But the, the complete book from the beginning is a, it's a complicated story because the real world is complicated. You know, you have lots of things going on at the same time. And, and um, in my book, I try to, to give, uh, you know, due uh, respect for this complexity of the, of the real world. Uh, so, no, I, I think, you know, I, I still have the same conclusion. If I was to rewrite the book today, there will be lit, very little that I will change. Probably the main difference is that I will be able to cover more emerging countries in the book because one of the very positive, to me, the most positive and the most interesting impact of the publication of the book was to induce more government to open their fiscal data, their fiscal files, so particularly in emerging countries, in Latin America, in, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Chile, also in Asia, in Korea, in Taiwan. We now have access to historical uh, uh, fiscal archives, which we couldn't um, uh, have access to before. And partly because of your work as a journalist who kept asking to uh, finance minister in Brazil or Mexico, why are, are you not in the book? And then they opened up their data. So, and, and we are putting online in the, in the world top income database new countries almost every week. So this is an ongoing process. And if I was to rewrite the book today, probably I would, I would talk more about emerging countries than I do in the book, which is something I regret. It's not that I was not interested. It's just I couldn't have access to data. So it's not entirely my and fault. Then it would have been even longer. We're going to get into some of these issues around what's true, what's not, some of the arguments. But I want to get, you know, I made a sort of cheap joke at the beginning about the election. But one of the things that I've noticed over the many months of people talking about your book is they say rock star, French economist, fast, great data, shame about the theory, really hopelessly impractical policy prescriptions. You know, that's the kind of, roughly summarising the thrust of it. Um, you know, do you find, why do you think, no, I mean, in the genuine interest, because you see, this, is a, this was a sellout very quickly, this event. 
why are people, and not to impugn anyone for how they voted or anything else, but why are people so interested in inequality, apparently, and so uninterested in really doing anything about it or willing to consider those difficult steps that would actually try to fix it? Well, I am less pessimistic than you seem to be. No, I think people are interested in... I think people are interested in inequality and they are interested in solving the problem. Now, the solutions are difficult. And, you know, it's always tempting when you don't manage to solve your uh, domestic uh, inequality or social problem. It's always tempting to find easier solutions. Typically, it's always tempting to blame, you know, other people, to blame foreign workers, to blame Brussels, to blame Germany, to blame uh, China. To, you know, there are lots of people you can blame for your problems. And... and This makes me sad, but, you know, this happened certainly in this country, in the recent uh, electoral campaign, but this happened also in my country, in France, where, you know, very powerful political forces are, are trying to blame uh, basically foreigners or Europe for the, for the problems. Uh, so that's, that's, that's very, you know, that's very difficult to, to, get, uh, to get across a more complicated solution, which sometimes, you know, requires more international cooperation, But this doesn't mean that this won't uh, happen. You know, this is, if you look at the history of, of inequality and taxation, you know, a very general lesson is that things happen even when you don't expect them to happen. You know, one century ago, at the very beginning of the 20th century, many people were saying, for instance, that the progressive income tax would never happen. You know, in the U.S., it was even unconstitutional. And in the end, there was a change even in the U.S. Constitution in 1913. The income tax was created and it became enormously progressive in the U.S. and in the U.K. And so people at that time would have said, okay, nothing will ever happen. So I am not terribly impressed, you know, by people who know in advance what will happen or what will not happen. No, I didn't say it wasn't going to happen. I said that's what everyone says is, oh, it's hopeless. Mm. And I tell you why, though. It's because we seem to have a particular problem with wealth taxation. And, and Francois Mitterrand had the same issue. Income, progressive income, and maybe you're right, maybe we just have to get used to the idea, but it seems to be particularly hard for governments of any persuasion to mess with people's wealth, even when we all know, you know, we are all told that a very large proportion of the wealth is, a, is held by a small number of people and only a small number of people are affected. Inheritance tax, mansion yeah. house, we've... This has been a very difficult issue. No, it's difficult, and at the same time, you do have very progressive inheritance tax in Britain, in Germany, in the US, in France. You know, in Japan, recently, the government increased the top inheritance tax rate to 55%. You know, it used to be 45% for a long time. This is not a particularly left-wing government that you have in Japan. This is what they just did. In the case of Britain, you probably noticed that the the previous Labour government before the, the Cameron government introduced uh, a 5% tax on transaction for real estate property uh, worth more than 1 million pounds. And at that time, the Conservative Party said, oh, this is very bad, you should not do this. And then when they came to power, they introduced a 7% tax rate on transaction for properties worth more than 2 million pounds. And, and apparently nobody is going to suppress this from what I understand. So in my view, you know, it would actually be much better to have lower tax rate on an annual basis rather than such enormous tax rate at the time of transaction because it's like taxing the fact that people move around and that doesn't strike me as a very sensible thing. And you know, at the same time, the annual property tax or the council tax is very regressive in this country. 
you know, in the sense that when you go from a property worth 100,000 pounds to a property worth 1 million, your council tax is not multiplied by 10, it's multiplied by 2 or 3. So the, the tax rate actually declines with the level of wealth, whereas for the transaction tax, it increases sharply. And, you know, in, in France, I, I, we used to look at Britain as a reasonable country with a lot of pragmatism, and, you know, this is an example where it's hard mm -hmm. to make sense of why it should be so progressive. But in any case, the point is that both parties, from the left and the right, uh, have moved in the direction of more progressivity for property tax, and, you know, real estate property, that's half of, of private wealth, or even more than half of private wealth these days in Britain with very high real estate prices. So this shows that you know, these issues sometimes go beyond left and right. When you have such high property values at the top end of the distribution and people at the bottom end who have a hard time accessing property, in particular the young generation with no family wealth who only have their labor income, if you want to access property in London or in Paris today just with your labor income, this will have to be... Uh, a really good labor income, as you probably have noticed. And, and so, you know, it's a matter of common sense that in such a setting you should probably tax labor income a bit less and tax uh, accumulated property at the top end a bit more. And I think this goes beyond left and right, as this recent uh, British uh, evolution uh, uh, suggests. Uh, so, you know, things in, in, in actual political life people who are in charge sometimes conduct policies that are very different from what they have planned uh, when they were uh, in opposition or before right. the election. And sometimes they don't have plans, as you know, so they just, uh, they just have right. to do something. I have to uh, let the others get a word in edgeways. I know that we'll, uh, having had Martin Wolf as one of my first bosses in journalism, I know he will have plenty to say, and none of it will be wrong, obviously. Uh, should we just address, without going down too many statistical rabbit holes, whether Thomas is right about the basic facts, about what is going on in the world? Mm. Just take that small piece. But I want to also get on to other issues like why we should care and, and what we should do about it. But Martin, is he right okay. about the basic facts? There are perhaps a couple of things that you can focus on. First, I think we have to be clear, this is a book about wealth. And that makes it different, it's very important. But as you rightly pointed out, the wealth, at least half of the wealth is land, wealth from land. And what determines its price, um, rental value, obviously, is very different from what we think of as capital. Yet you call it capital and you all accumulate, think of it in the same way. Is it right to aggregate in this way uh, land and capital? That's the first really big thing. The second point is, which, which concerns me is that you invented the idea, which is very important in terms of where we are now. I think, of the, I think your phrase is the patrimonial middle class, which, by which you mean the fact that now a very large number of middle and upper middle class people own land because they own their own houses and the most valuable land now is urban real estate and that means actually that wealth for the first time really is quite widely shared and with a lot of people have a tremendous interest in holding it my final question is sort of a bigger one 
um, the art, you can't get away from it because it's a central part of your thesis. I think you are resiling from it, withdrawing from it. You have a stipulation that if the rate of return on wealth exceeds the growth rate, the strong tendency will be for wealth to be ever more unequally concentrated. That's my reading of it. It's not clear to me that that's consistent with what happened in the 19th century from your own data, that it was ever more unequal. And it's not clear that that's what's happening now. And it's certainly not clear, particularly given what it said about the patrimonial class, it's what must happen in the future. And the reason is fortunes get lost. People consume them. People waste them. And you have very little about in the book, it seems to me, about that process. So those are some of my big questions about the way you analyse this problem of wealth. Tom, do you want to quickly... You right. want to come, but if we try and actually respond to some of those, and then I know, because David may have some overlapping things, so we... Okay, well, uh, quickly, so... Uh, so housing, well, housing plays a very important role, and indeed the increase in housing prices is a very big part in some countries, even more than 100% of the increase in the aggregate value of private wealth. That's very important. So can we understand everything about wealth by just summing up everything? No, of course not. We need to look separately at each component, and that's what I do in the book. And again, that's why the book is so long. If you look at chapter three to six, you know, I look in detail at the history of real estate assets as compared to public debt, to financial assets, to business capital, to foreign assets, to land, agricultural land as opposed to housing land. All these different forms of property have a different history, depends on different technological forces, institutions, regulating relations between owners and tenants. So you really need to open the black box of, of capital and different wealth assets to understand uh, what's going on. So that's answer to the, to the first part. To the second part of about ever-increasing inequality. Uh, you know, I am not saying that uh, the, the share of total wealth going to the top 1% or to billionaires is going to go to 100%. You know, I'm sure this will stop before that. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, nobody knows where it's going to stop. And this per se is an issue. And I think we need more transparency so that we can adapt our policies, uh, our tax policies in particular, but not only, to whatever is going on. So according to uh, the best data we have, uh, which is not so good, I should say, but you know, according to the best data we have for the top of the wealth distribution, so if you take all the wealth rankings published by uh, Forbes or any magazine, uh, what you find is that top wealth holders um, are rising much faster than average wealth. So, of course, there's a lot of mobility. You know, when I look, so re responding to your question about mobility, it's clear when I, I use, for instance, the Forbes rankings uh, of world billionaires from 1987 to 2013, so I start in 1987 because this is when they started publishing it, these are not the same people at the top, of course. You know, in 1987, the people at the top, according to Forbes, were uh, Japanese billionaires which everybody has forgotten their name. And, and now in 2013, you have Carlos Slim, you have, you have uh, uh, Bill Gates, and that's fine. So there is a lot of mobility. But the fact that there is mobility, that some people go down, some people go up, this does not explain why average wealth in this top group is rising at 6-7% per year in real terms over a 30-year period, which is three, four times faster than average wealth in the world. Because if you were in some kind of equilibrium of the world distribution of wealth, 
Then the average wealth at the top should rise more or less at the same speed as average wealth in the world. So you would have some new entrepreneurs who get rich, that's fine. Some old entrepreneurs will become poorer, that's fine. You have mobility, but the two effects should more or less balance each other. You know, I think it's okay to have very rich people, it's very useful to have entrepreneurs, but you just want the different groups in society in the long run to grow more or less at the same speed. I think everybody can understand that if the average wealth at the top is rising at 6-7% per year in real terms and average wealth in society uh, in the world is rising at 1-2% per year, this cannot continue forever. Because if this was to continue forever, then indeed the share of world wealth going to billionaires will go to 100%, which everybody would agree is, is too much. And, and, you know, I'm not saying it's going to go there. I'm sure it will stop before that. But where exactly will it stop? I think it's important to realize that we cannot just rely on natural market forces. I, I believe in market forces innovation. I'm just saying that we also need strong uh, democratic institutions. Uh, we need more transparency so as to be able to adapt our policies to whatever we observe. And if what we observe is that the top is not rising faster than the average, then I will be happy to conclude that we don't need very progressive taxation. You know, it's a, David, David Smith, it's a matter of transparency. There are some question marks about some of the, the actual trends here. Yeah, but I mean, two, two points. I mean, let me say, first of all, this is an excellent book and very readable, and I would uh, recommend those of you who haven't bought it, you'll, you'll be able to get a signed copy later. Uh, but uh, two points. One on the data. Um, I mean, there is, there is a dispute about the, uh, the data that um, if you look at the work of Tony Atkinson, for example, on income inequality in the UK, his story is that it, uh, it went down a lot right for most of the 20th century, rose in the 1980s, and hasn't done, hasn't, hasn't done, hasn't done much since. You, you'd agree with that? It's, well, no, this has increased somewhat in the, past, uh, in the past 20 years, but this is the same data broadly, that we are using. He says broadly, if you look at you know, measures of wealth inequality, and say you take the Credit Suisse data, I mean, that shows that, you know, partly for the reasons that Martin says, the UK has uh, a more equal distribution of wealth than Sweden, Germany, France, and quite a few other countries. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we have high levels of income inequality, but lower levels of wealth inequality because the wealth no, this, is, this the wealth is spread. Wrong, but, but, well, that is, that is what it shows. No, yeah, no. yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, but, uh, but I'm, I'm happy that you are optimistic about the... No, 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 the trends, I, I think that, I mean, it's I mean, partly that the data's not there, right? There's, I mean, one of the problems is you draw some conclusions from a certain number of countries and a certain data sets, and there aren't a lot of other data sets, and there are reasons to think the data sets themselves are flawed, and you mentioned about tax avoidance and other issues, but it's just the case that it's not as clear from the data when other people look at it. Okay, let me clarify this. Okay, you know, I fully agree that we have too little data. And the reason why we keep working on this World Wealth and Income database and we put all data online is because, you know, we are aware that data is imperfect, we need to make progress, we, we spend a lot of energy trying to put more and more data online. All the details are online so that people can contribute to data improvement and we need to make progress. But now, concluding from the lack of data that Britain is more egalitarian than Sweden is, I think, wrong. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why very quickly. People, no, there, is, there is data. No, no. But there is, there, there, well, I can tell you the, the data that we have. In the case of Britain... This is well. Well, but then people, people have been comparing self-reported survey data for Britain, where the top is ridiculously small, 
with data based on tax, uh, tax sources where, where, where we know that the top is much better reported. I mean, this is not serious. Look, if, if the Financial Times or the Sunday Times or whoever has a wealth ranking for Britain which shows that the top wealth people did not increase more than average wealth in Britain over the past 20 years, please publish it. But for the time being, for the time being, no, but look, this is an important issue. For the time being, all the wealth rankings that we have for Britain over the past 20 years suggest that if you take a fixed percentile of the population at the top, you know, top 0 0.1%, 0.1%, 0 0.01%, you look at the average wealth of this group and you compare to average wealth in Britain, I think you will agree You're, that what people list. find is that the top is rising faster yeah, than the, the average. You know, the if you have a different ranking, publish it. You know. yeah, in the last but, 10 years. Uh, but the rich list is, is a different... Well, but it's... it's um, well, if you I would want say, to, to uh, study wealth by excluding the rich, you know... No, you no, no, no. I will... I will, I will I'm, I'm saying it's... Or it, claiming that the rich I'm, list isn't accurate. I'm Surely not. It may not be as rigorous as Thomas' work and the the work by the American academics which makes up the Credit Suisse report, which I'll send you. If you I, know it, I know it very you know, well. well yeah, they, yeah. they use self-reported yeah, yeah. survey data which we know underestimates... Yeah. You know, look, if your own rankings of, of, of billionaires in, in Britain not is, is not accurate, you know, publish another one. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that it doesn't go through the same statistical process, which I think okay. academic work... Is. But the, the, the main point I wanted to ask you was... Um, if, if I, I took the central message from the book as capital inequality or the, the inequality in the ownership of capital or wealth breeds income inequality because the returns on capital are higher than the returns on uh, than income uh, income from employment, which then breeds further wealth inequality, which breeds income inequality, and so on. Now, and this may be all your other points there, but I took that as a central message. If I look at the causes of inequality. They are things like globalization, which drives down the incomes of the unskilled and helps those who are globally mobile and so on. I think of you know, the lucky few who, who come to be CEOs and suddenly get paid an enormous amount more than, than everybody else within the company, let alone everybody else in the country. I think of the gains accruing to sports and entertainment stars through TV rights and all those things. I think of... Um, well, I, I, I think of the, the people who don't necessarily own the capital in, within the financial services industry earn enormous sums of money by processing and trading the capital. So are, are you giving us here, a, in, in terms of the you know, capital, leads to, capital inequality leads to income inequality, leads to further inequality, is that a general theory of inequality or just, a partial, or just one of the explanations? inequality. Oh, it's, you're perfectly right. It's only part of the explanation. So all these other mechanisms that you're mentioning, uh, you know, low-skill uh, labor versus high-skill labor, convergence between uh, uh, emerging countries and rich countries, uh, CEO pay, determination, uh, financial uh, remuneration, sports sector, all this is very important and all this is addressed in the, in the book. And in fact, in some countries, you know, if you take the case of the United States, the, the main driver behind rising inequality over the past uh, decades has been rising inequality of labor income. Not so much the sportsmen, because you know, there are very few uh, top sportsmen, but the top uh, 
uh, incomes uh, uh, for top uh, managers, both in the financial sector, in the non-financial sectors. Uh, you know, this is really what has been driving uh, inequality upwards. Then, what we see in the, in the more recent period is that this is feeding increasing in wealth inequality, which in turn uh, can also uh, feed itself. But all these mechanisms uh, play, uh, play an important role. Uh, uh, so I'm certainly not saying that you know, the balance between the rate of return and the growth rate is the only mechanism, uh, in particular top managerial compensation. Labor market institutions in general play an important role. So in the US, the, the federal minimum wage right now is less in terms of purchasing power than what it was in the late uh, 1960s. So, so this, this also has an impact on, on uh, uh, you know, access to skills, inequality in the U.S. educational system. This is playing a, a major role. Okay, we've talked about the, the facts and, the, and some of the mechanisms. I want to, you know, we want to move in the direction of thinking about this issue I raised about uh, the prescriptions. But if you're going to make the case for doing a particular thing about it, you need to say why it matters, this rise in inequality. <clears throat> and I think several of us thought that was something which maybe received not enough attention in your book, perhaps because you think it's, it's self-evident. But in your description of the patrimonial, the, the property-owning class in the middle and how important that was to society, you don't really get a sense of, of why that was positive and why some reversal of that is now very costly to society. So I don't know, Martin, did you want to say anything more on that? I, mean, just... I think that... I mean, as to say, at the very broadest level, I think the story that of rising inequality of wealth and incomes over the last 30 years is pretty convincing. So let's accept that. It's not the same in all countries, but that's a broad story. And the, 19, the earlier data is fascinating. But obviously, if you want to... Mo and this is where Stephanie started. If you want to mobilise political action and you are optimistic, but it presumably won't happen all of itself, you have to persuade people that it really is important. And uh, so I think there are different ways of going at that. One way is to say that it's obviously the result of unfair processes, things that almost everybody would accept are unfair processes. And that's something that people sort of understand. Another way of going at it would be... Um, that the social consequences are devastatingly bad. It, it, uh, it undermines trust in society, it creates extraordinary inequalities of wealth, it leads to uh, power, sorry, power uh, in society from wealth, and it, it, it inevitably leads to extreme inequalities of opportunity at a certain point. If the differences in wealth and income are large enough, inequalities of opportunity become endemic in society. And then you might suddenly say it's just bad in itself because it's wrong that people should have such unequal resources. But it was completely unclear to me, perhaps you really did take it for granted, why we should care. Because I think a lot of readers will say, yeah, well, why should we care? And pretty clear that lots of people don't. Yeah, uh, no, you're, you're right. I should add an extra chapter, maybe, but, uh, you know... <laughs> No, I, too short. But there's a, there's a particular thing I thought, which is that we have, we can get mesmerised. You know, the fantastic statistic about what percentage of the income mm. of the last 20 years in the US has gone to the 1% is, is mesmerising. But if I think about what I worry about most, I actually, and about wealth inequality, I worry about the fact that a third of people in this country have less than £5,000 or negative mm. net worth. 
you know, what to f nothing to fall right. back on when something so bad happens mm. to them. So why isn't mm. that the real important thing rather than just the sort of riches at the top? Yeah, no, I, I think I, you know, I care a lot more about the share going to the bottom half and what I call the middle class, which is the middle 40s and the share going to the top in itself. So to, to answer very, very quickly to this very important question, you know, I think a shrinking middle class share in national wealth is a danger both for our economy and for our democracy. I think uh, uh, inequality in itself is not a problem. You know, some level of inequality can be justified by uh, incentive consideration, can be useful for growth, and everybody can understand this. But above a certain level, when inequality becomes excessive, then it's not really useful for growth anymore, and it can put our democratic institution uh, under threat. So, in my book, I actually start from a quote from the Declaration of Rights of, the, of 1789, uh, that's actually Article 1, uh, saying uh, social distinction uh, must be based on common utility. So in other words, there's no problem with social inequality in itself as long as it can be justified by common utility, which you can interpret in particular as uh, the interest of society as a whole, and in particular the more disadvantaged group in society. And so, why do we care about inequality? Well, I think in all modern democracies, what's interesting is that people need to justify inequality on the basis of common interests. So people at the very top will never say, well, okay, I am very rich, and the poor are poor, and that's too bad for them. They will always say, yes, I am very rich, but this is in the interest uh, on the poor. And, and sometimes it's right, and sometimes it's wrong. And so we have to judge, you know, to see in actual historical evidence, you know, we don't have a magic mathematical formula to determine where is the turning point. All what we have is this imperfect historical evidence. And so what can we learn from this historical evidence as to where is the optimal point in terms of inequality? Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely sure. What I know is that the level of wealth concentration that we had uh, in pretty much every European society up until World War I was not useful for growth. You know, both in, in Britain, in France, and in every European country, at that time there was basically uh, no wealth for the middle class, and 90% and of the wealth will belong to the top 10%. And what I call the middle class in my book, which is the middle 40% who are not in the bottom half, not in the top 10 the middle class basically did not exist in the sense that their share in national wealth was just as small as that of the poor. Today, the situation is, is better, but the share going to the middle class has, has started to decline again. And uh, it's important to realize that the big reduction in inequality happened between 1914 and 1915, 1960, 1970. There was no natural tendency for a reduction of wealth concentration up until... World War I, and it is only after these violent shocks and after the, the new fiscal and social institutions, the kind of welfare capitalism that was uh, uh, adopted after World War II and finally accepted by the elite after World War II, uh, which uh, made the, the distribution more unequal. And this was certainly not bad for growth. You know, inequality was a lot lower in 1915, 1960, 1970, than in 1910, but, but growth, if anything, was, was, was higher. So the, the one sentence lesson from history is that we don't need 19th century inequality to grow in the 21st century. So we, I, we are not there yet. I'm not saying we are going, necessarily going to return to there, but that's a possibility. 
And so we should make sure that we don't return there and we should not take as, this as granted. Just, just to uh, pin you down slightly on that and to uh, reference our excellent and rigorous rich list again, um, should, we, should we care? I mean, do you, care, do you think it's more important to worry about the, the top 0.1% who may have broken away, they may be footloose internationally, they may be able to move quite easily from one country to another, or a measure like you know, income the ten, at the 10th percentile and income at the 90th percentile and the difference between those two. Is, which, which, which to you is the more important measure of inequality? They, they are all important. You know, we, I, we don't care about the top if it's not significant from a macroeconomic viewpoint. So if you just have you know, a few sportsmen or a few CEOs who are very well paid, but it's just a very small number of people and a very small share of national income and wealth, then maybe that's worth it. So we start to care about it when it's sufficiently significant to impact the share going to the bottom half of society, the middle uh, 40% in society. And then we have to ask to ourselves, is it, is it worth it? And again, sometimes it is worth it, sometimes it's not. So, in, you know, for instance, you know, in the case of the U.S., I think that many people agree now that the huge rise uh, in top income shares that occurred uh, between 1980 and 2010, and in particular up to the financial crisis of 2007-2008, uh, contributed not only to a stagnation of median income, but also to the rise of household debt and ultimately to, to this did contribute to fragilize the, 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 the financial system. And it, was it worth it? You know, is it worth paying top managers uh, $10 million rather than $1 million? Uh, you know, I couldn't find any evidence for that. You know, so maybe, again, my data is imperfect, and you know, if there is better data, but in the data we have collected with Emmanuel Saez, Stephanie Stancheva, we look at all publicly traded corporations in North America, Europe, Japan over the past 30 years. We compare in the same sector companies paying their top managers 10 million rather than one. Do you get better performance, more job creation, more innovation? I'm sorry, but I could not find it in my data. Because so, you know, but I am open to, you know, it's a legitimate discussion. Because you mentioned the, the, what's happened since 1979, it does remind me of a fact that Larry Summers has put out recently, not from your book, in fact, but it puts a bit of perspective on this. If the U.S. had the same income distribution now that it had in 1979, when we actually all thought it was still pretty unequal the top 1% would have $1 trillion less in annual income and the bottom 80% would have $1 trillion more. So that's, that's $700,000 a year less for a family in the top 1% and about $11,000 a year for everyone in the bottom 80%. So I think that does... It puts it in perspective, the change just from 79 Right. Um, and another way to put it is, you know, the federal minimum wage in the U.S. right now is $7.2 per hour. In, in the late 1960s, if you put it in dollars of today, it was more than $10 per hour. So it's, you know, it's not, it's quite unusual for a country over half a century to have an absolute decline of more than 25% of the purchasing power of its minimum wage. And the unemployment rate at that time was not higher than what it is today. So the country was able to employ 95% of its workforce with a minimum wage that was 25%. So why is it so? So I'm not, I'm not saying the solution is just to increase the minimum wage, although I think Obama is right to propose a substantial increase in the U.S. federal minimum wage, but that's not enough. You also want, you need to invest more in the skills and education 
you know, the, in, in the US, you have a very high inequality in the educational system, and, and the, uh, you know, the bottom half of the population, not only they don't go to Harvard, but they go to a, a, a community college or, or public high school which are, which are not uh, sufficiently well funded. And I, I have a statistic in my book where I mention that the, you know, the average income of the parents of Harvard University undergrad students right now corresponds to uh, the average income of the top 2% of the U.S. distribution of family income. So this doesn't mean that everybody at Harvard comes from the top 2%. You have some people who come from below the top 2, but they are so few, and the people who come from the top 2 are so high in the top 2 that the overall average is as if all students had been picked at random within the top 2. I think this is an example where the gap between the official discourse based on meritocracy, equal opportunity, uh, hypermobility of US society, etc., etc., and the reality is particularly strong. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy by the elite, not only in the US, but you know, also in my country, in France, you know, we don't have these very high tuition fees, but we are sometimes able to put uh, uh, five times more public resources in the uh, top schools uh, where the children of the elite go to as compared to those. So, you know, in every country, there's a lot of hypocrisy about equal opportunity, and there's a, uh, uh, an incredible ability sometimes of the elite to justify inequality as fair when it is not fair. And I think what's important in to, is to put all these claims under public scrutiny and to have more transparency, not only about income and wealth, but also about who benefits from what public spendings so that we can adapt our policies. Right. Uh, you have got a chance now to ask your brief and acerbic questions. Uh, Professor Thomas, I would like to, to maybe uh, ask you more about... Uh, why is it not good uh, uh, that wealth accumulations, um, so the wealth accumulations is not good? Because we know that uh, government is not uh, usually the best uh, wealth administrator. So then, uh, is it not true that wealth accumulations enables uh, wealth individuals to, to undertake high-risk business endeavors or uh, uh, research that is not widely accessible. For example, we have private space programs and uh, uh, research in fundamental research in medicine that is privately funded, and it cannot be if there are no wealthy individuals. So why is it not good? And if you say it's not fair, I will ask, on which system of beliefs are you assessing is not fair? Well, it is good. You know, I like wealth accumulation. I like capital. I like it so much that I would like more people to own more capital. So, you know, my, my only concern, let, let me make very clear that when I talk about a rising capital to income ratio, rising beta in my book, this is not bad news. This is, it's good in itself to have more capital. The, the only concern is that you want the middle class to have a decent share in the total. So if you have a shrinking share for the middle class. I think this is not good for our democracy, not good for our economy. Uh, also, a rising uh, uh, capital to income ratio, if it comes from a real estate price bubble and excessive asset prices, then this is not good either. So, you know, rising capital to income ratio is not bad in itself, but it raises new policy concerns in terms of uh, 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 banking regulation. 
so when you have a capital to income ratio of uh, you know uh, eight years of GDP instead of two years of GDP back in 1970, this means that if you make a 10% mistake uh, on the price of your real estate in Spain, uh, you know this has tr enormous consequences for the real economy. So this raises issue about financial regulation. Uh, this also raises issue about inequality and it's very difficult for the young generation with limited okay. uh, family wealth to access property. But in itself, uh, wealth accumulation is, is certainly not bad. This is a source of growth and, and development. And um, Elon Musk is one of the most recent people to have signed the Giving Pledge, which was set up by uh, uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to uh, address... Uh, all kinds of issues of poverty, global poverty around the world. Um, and so far, the total amount of money being pledged through um, the Giving Pledge, which is collected, I don't know how many billionaires around the world, is somewhere around $100 billion. Um, and some people, uh, some, some commentators have opined that um, this is, a, this is a, the greatest uh, age of philanthropy since the days of Carnegie and Rockefeller. So uh, my, my question is, um, to what extent can we rely on acts of individual charity, large or small, to mitigate against the need for a wealth tax? Okay. I, I, had, I, I had recently this uh, conversation with uh, Bill Gates who uh, wanted to write a review on my book. So he, he asked, to have a, can we have a Skype conversation? So I said, okay, let's, let's have a Skype conversation. I hope you uh, made him pay for the copy of the book there at least. No, I didn't do that. I think he already had one. I, I don't know. You know, that was through Skype, so I could not uh, do much. But from what he told me, he had read the book, and I, I suppose that he bought it. I don't know. Uh, anyway, you know, basically what he told me was, okay, I, I agree with everything that's in the book. Rising inequality is a problem, but I don't want to pay more tax. Or, more precisely, what he told me was interesting. He said, well, I am in favor of a very steeply progressive tax on consumption. So, you know, if I consume millions of euros in, in, in luxury goods, then I want to be taxed at 90%. So I want a top tax rate of 90%, but on high consumption, not high income or high wealth. Now, that's an interesting uh, statement. The, the problem, you know, the problem is the following. What is consumption? for very wealthy individuals. You know, there's no way when you have tens of billions of, of dollars and, and you have a rate of return to this, you know, there's no way just by consuming food or clothes or, you know, normal consumption that you're going to consume a significant fraction of your total income or wealth. This will be a ridiculously small fraction. So when you're very wealthy, what you're going to consume is uh, power, influence, uh, and, 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 you know, in some cases, this is certainly very useful, but in some cases, you know, you, I, what I ask uh, Bill Gates is, you know, what about, you know, when the Koch brothers uh, put a lot of their uh, money into financing political campaigns, you know, is this part of their consumption? Is this part of their income? You know, when you're very wealthy, you, you, you consume uh, uh, sometimes politicians, you consume uh, sometimes... Uh, Other members of your you, coalition. Sometimes you consume academics, sometimes you consume journalists. You know, you, there's a lot of good things to consume around. So, <laughs> so, you know, what's consumption? So I think it will be impossible, you know, to define, in fact, consumption. You know, also when you use your corporate jet you know, to go to a meeting. Is this consumption? Is this investment? Is this intermediate consumption in your company accounts? You know, nobody knows. And it will be terribly intrusive 
in fact, to define what's consumption. So, you know, when I, when I read the press and I read magazines, although we've been told that these rankings were not very good, but, you know, when, when you read... Well, at least, you know, I can see rankings of wealth everywhere. I don't see rankings of consumption. And actually, when you ask uh, billionaires, you know, is the data in the wealth rankings okay, they say, well, more or less, it's okay. So apparently, you know, it's easier to observe and monitor net wealth than to observe consumption. So I think, uh, uh, you know, a progressive tax on net wealth or income, I think, is much more viable than a progressive tax on consumption. I believe in private philanthropy. You know, I have actually uh, uh, wrote the statutes of the Paris School of Economics, which is a private foundation and which raised a lot of money from the private sector together with public money. So I have no problem with private philanthropy. But I think this must come in addition to taxation, not instead of taxation. You know, it's very difficult to organize a society by letting uh, thousands of people decide for themselves how much they want to contribute for the public good. You know, I think you need to have some, some, some you know, it's not good if, uh, if uh, Warren Buffett feels that he's paying a, a lower effective tax rate than his secretary. You know, you want a, a, a minimal uh, tax that should be, you know, reflect some progressivity with respect to income and wealth so that uh, people at the top pay at least as much as effective tax rate as people below them, which is not always the case. And, and then private philanthropy can be... Also, we should not be naive. You know, sometimes we hear claims about private philanthropy which are incredibly, I think, uh, naive and over-optimistic. You know, sometimes people feel that, uh, you know, this can solve all problems. You know, when you look at actual data, for in my book, I look at data for uh, Harvard University or other U.S. universities where they actually publish data on how much their students uh, have, have uh, given money to them. So in the case of Harvard... I make the comparison between the rate of return to the university endowment of Harvard University, which has been you know, over 8% per year in real terms over the past 30 years, while the total gift made by their former students, or anybody who made gift to Harvard, this is equivalent to uh, less than 0.5% per year of their capital endowment. So this is completely negligible as compared to the rate of return. I mean, these are still big amounts of money, and sometimes it's... Uh, it's actually useful because it allows you to get your children admitted to Harvard, which is very good. But, but in terms of, if you want to explain why the endowment of Harvard has gone from $3 billion 20 years ago to 40 today, that's negligible. That's not important. Okay, I'm going to have to wind up because we always we promise people that they'll uh, get out on time. Uh, and I will give... Well, I'll give Tom a brief last word in a minute, but I also wanted to just ask very quickly, Martin and David, you know, we've had 18 months of discussion about this book in anticipation of the book, and then many events like this, and many, many reviews and, and articles. Ultimately, and it, we all agree it's very important, and it's cast light on a lot of things, but do you think it has really overall illuminated our understanding, done more to illuminate our understanding or to show up our deep sense of confusion and possibly various, quite a lot of inability to act on these issues. In the end, do you think it has, should make us feel that we do, yes, we have more answers around the world, or actually the world is a much my, harder place? My reactions to the book, in very brief, are two. One, it has, it's very illuminating. It's a very important book. I take this absolutely clear. And at the moment... Uh, the impact on actual real politics and policy 
and the debate around it is as near zero as makes no difference. However, I want to end optimistically. I hope this will change. David. Yeah, um, I mean, it is um, an important book, and I think it's, it, it has become a sort of beacon for inequality and for talking about inequality, and I think that is, that is, um, that is very important. And I think it's also made people think about, uh, which I don't think they were thinking about before, whether the natural tendency of capitalism is towards greater inequality and, as Martin said, was broken by the exceptional events of the first half of the 20th century. Um, but it is complicated, as you, as you say. There are very many reasons for inequality, um, probably some that aren't in your book, despite its length. And um, uh, so I think we've still got quite a lot to find out. Uh, but, uh, but I think it is an important book, yeah. I have a couple of last questions to you. One is, if I go on Amazon and I look at all the comments on the book, will I now find something from Mr. Bill Gates saying, well, I enjoyed it, you know, a bit boring at the end, but like the middle bit, you know. And secondly, are you now feeling you have to write another book? Are you halfway through another one? Or are you still... Well, at Bill Gates, I think you can have his opinion by looking at his blog where he, he posted online a review, a very nice review, except that he doesn't want to pay more tax and he prefers a, <laughs> and he would prefer a consumption tax, as I said. Uh, I, you know, sure, I will write more books. I, you know, I don't know yet, uh, you know, when it will come, but, you know, I'm still young and I certainly expect to, to, to write more books. You know, I, I believe in the power of books and ideas, and, and, but at the same time, we have to be modest. Uh, these, these books can have an impact uh, uh, in the long run, and, and it takes more than a book to, to, to make uh, changes happen, and, and there are all sorts of books uh, that, that uh, had an impact in history, and it often took a, a very long time, and, and uh, you know, so I will keep doing my job. My, my ultimate objective is to, as I said at the beginning, to contribute to a democratization of economic knowledge and that more and more people, you know, consider that these are issues which they cannot leave to others and they cannot leave to a small group of uh, experts or economists and that these are issues that are at the core of our democratic discussion and... and uh, you know, this is the best, uh, the best I can hope for. So, I'm, you know, I'm not going to complain about the reception uh, for my book. Uh, this is uh, more than what I could possibly uh, well, I'm expect. I'm sure, as you show in your book, it will take more than a book. It may even take more than a few meetings with nice people in Westminster. But thank you very much, all of you, for coming, and thank you for everyone here. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.